0: Good morning, Church of the City. Nice to see you. Well, why don't you respond? It's usually the custom when someone talks to you, talk back, right? So, good morning! Good morning. Oh, that's great. You know, it's always good at the start of a sermon to have people with you, because you're never quite sure, as the preacher, if they're going to be with you at the end. Why don't we just take a moment after we've sung those verses, songs, of consecration commitment to just really think about where we are emotionally, spiritually, in the presence of God this morning. What's really happening inside of us? What is it that we've brought with us that um, maybe we've not surrendered to the Lord yet or had opportunity or even examined ourselves in the day it's been get up, get the kids going, or yourself going, and get here and all of that. Just take a moment and center yourself in the presence of God and invite him. Uh, Into that space. Let's do that, and then I'll lead you in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for quietness and space. Thank you for an opportunity to invite you into the inner places of our being, touched as we've been by the truth we've sung and reflected on and considered what it really means to be all yours, all in, all of me for all of you. Uh, We're facing so many things that are complex and challenging. We have individuals among us as a congregation who are suffering chronic and advancing illness, and they feel separated from people that they would otherwise be warmly connected to, easily connected to, socially connected to in this time. And we're praying for your grace and your care and your healing touch, uh, certainly the presence, the, the, the reminder to them through your word and the care of others that you are with them and you'll never forsake them. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity that you give us to be able to pray for our government and those who have authority over us. We pray for our nation, for Ottawa, for our leaders there in the federal government, that while there is an ongoing protest that all of us have witnessed to in the news, we have various (laughs) opinions about all of that, and we recognize that being a leader in this time of complexity is a huge challenge. So we pray for our leaders, Father, that you would continue to give us the peace that we need. And so as we go about our lives, we would be ambassadors of yours in the context and in a time where people need hope, encouragement. Um, They need something outside themselves and beyond themselves to look to. And we who are yours know that it's you. And so we would pray that you would empower us to be faithful, to be effective witnesses, to be reminded that the good work you've begun in us, you're never going to abandon. Thank you that we don't have to inform you about our needs. You, You know them, but you give us the freedom to do that. And in the process of telling you where we're at and what our needs are, we unburden ourselves. As Peter wrote, the church, cast all your care on him because he cares for you. Thank you that we can lean into that. And while circumstances defy that in the moment, The truth of your word and our experience in life affirms it. We would pray too that you would fuel our hearts today in your word, that you would remind us of things that we've forgotten, that you would teach us new things that we can hide in our heart, that we can lean into its truth and find it to be our counsel, our encouragement, our challenge so that as we walk before you, we will find that your word is light to our feet. It gives us direction. It gives us understanding of our circumstance, and it gives us the assurance of your presence. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. In the passage of Scripture that Sam just, uh, and in the chapter that follows, it's an unusual combination within the Scripture that there is, that there is both the... Um, narrative in chapter four and then there is the song of Deborah and if you've read it and dipped into it because you know where we are in the series you would have seen that it is actually a duet and that's a bit odd uh, at the start there are so many details within both the first chapter the narrative the account and the song that we realize there is both a meta-message, or several meta-messages, big-picture messages, and then there are all kinds of encouraging and interesting details that are woven into it all. At first glance, I think all of us would be um, encouraged to spend some time thinking that this is an unusual character at the outset, That the judge of Israel at this time, although she's not called that in the passage, and she is not the general or the deliverer of Israel in terms of physical strength, she is in every sense of the term the judge of Israel who tells Israel what it should do and amasses both the general and he gets the army and then prophesies the outcome. She's without question the leader. And that's encouraging for us to see, because the entire narrative in the following song could be used to illustrate social and cultural change at its heart. But there's an attending deeper message that's woven all through that passage. Because where we're going to end is verses 23 and 24, and I think that should be on the screen behind us, if not shortly, it will be, uh, that reads, and let me remind you, so on that day... God subdued Jabin king of Canaan before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin the king of Canaan until they destroyed Jabin king of Canaan. So there's something transformational going on. Uh, There's something also in terms of process. It doesn't all happen in the first moment. It, it, It takes some time to get to this place and there's an encouragement just in knowing that. Uh, Because I don't know about you, but whenever I sing a song like Sam Lettuce, I surrender all, I think, oh God, I intend this, I mean this. But I know my life and what's going to happen by 4 o'clock this afternoon. I'm going to have to go back and dedicate all of that all over again. Because I have a will that doesn't always follow where it is I want it to go. Do you understand what I'm talking about? Paul describes that in Romans. He says the things I want to do, I do, I shouldn't do a wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? And he says, it's Jesus. Uh, We need him as much today as the first day that we believed. And so we're going to end this passage and see the process of what is going on in Israel. But here is the big thesis. It's the next slide that I want you to see, that God uses our obedience to his plan and purposes to influence others towards uh, transformation. In other words, when we're obedient, God uses our obedience, our agreement to follow him. Like the ripples that follow a stone thrown into water, there's a ripple effect, and it affects everyone around you. You've been sort of reading in the news, as I have, about the panic eruption down in Tonga and then the tsunamis that spread out and the damage that they did. There was a ripple effect from a primary incident. There's a spiritual parallel And he says that when the word of God and the ways of God are in the people of God and they're obedient to that, there's a ripple effect. And sometimes you and I doubt that. We we wonder, and there's passages of scripture like this that reinforce it. Now, our initial engagement in the chapter should be to see God using a woman first as a prophet, and from the platform i want to say of prophecy in other words people saw that what she said from god to people happened Uh, it was verified and as that began to be seen and the talk of the communities throughout israel was that there is a person who knows what god wants and when you go to see her you better because she speaks for the lord If you seek her advice because you want to know what to do, you best be prepared to follow it because what she says happens. She was that kind of person, powerful, influential, and God extended her reach, so to speak, as a judge in Israel. God engineers the victory from Deborah through Barak. And the, the, the extra person in this individual's is Jael, who doesn't appear until the very end, really, of the, of the passage, and she plays an influential role without question, but she's influenced because she sees the reality of what is happening, and on the moment, makes a decisive choice. And that influences all of Israel. In this passage of scripture, we, pause to consider what God is saying to this nation and to us about the roles of women in life and ministry. We might do that, and it would be fruitful. Evidently, God is neither reluctant nor is he unhappy about calling women then or now to serve him as obedient followers, and as obedient followers to promote them to places of influence, leadership, prominence, roles of influence. There's no reference in this passage of Scripture to God having to settle for Deborah because no one else was willing. There's no sense that this woman is second best because she couldn't find a man. Or Israel couldn't find a man. Rather what we see in this passage of scripture is that God is on the move and he's active and willing to use Everyone male and female who's willing to be obedient and through that obedience to lead a process of social cultural and spiritual change God uses obedient people disregarding their social standing and cultural limitation To accomplish outcomes that bring him glory and advance his kingdom purposes. Now that's powerful. And that's something we all ought to lean into and all of us ought to celebrate. It's Daniel Block, uh, one of the commentaries that we're using in this series. And he puts it succinctly. I'm going to read these. It's going to be on the screen. The biblical author was obviously interested in women's affairs and achievement. But in the final analysis, Deborah and Jael are not heroic figures because of their revisionist challenges to prevailing social structures. Now, that's a mouthful. In other words, it wasn't their intent to deal with the paternalism of their day. It was their intent to, well, on Deborah's case, we don't know about Jael, but on Deborah's certainly, to be obedient to the God who called her, gifted her, and promoted her. Let's go on. They are heroines because of what they accomplished as agents of the divine agenda, which in this instance has less to do with oppressive patriarchy than the role they play in Jehovah's overthrowing oppressive Canaanites. In other words, they didn't care about their place. They cared about the person and the purpose and the plan of God. And so should we. He says, now that's the meta-message. You see, Israel under the leadership of Joshua and then under the judges Othniel and Ehud and Shamgar in chapter 3 has done a marvelous thing. God has been leading through these individuals, but now what we see in chapter 4, they have shrunk back, they have been influenced out of the role that God has given them into a position of compromise and they are again oppressed by their neighbors. Why? Because they've become just like their neighbors. It's a story of compromise. And here they're being led by a fellow whose name is Sisera. And the thing you need to know about Sisera, it is uh, is neither a Canaanite nor it is a Jewish name. Probably Sisera was a merchant for hire, a hired gun. And he has come to a position of leadership. He was hired at some point by the Canaanites. And now he's living south in the Jezreel Valley, near the area of Megiddo, but a little further south and maybe up the hill. He's leading in a place that uh, Sam assured us as she began she was going to struggle with all these names. She did brilliantly. You need to commend her. But she was near a place called Heroshet Hagoyim, which means factory. or or place of craftsmanship, or some would even say forest area, of the Gentiles. Now, I really think it means factory of the Gentiles, and the reason is Sisera had 900 iron chariots. And and one might assume, oh, that's because Jabin gave them all to him. I don't think so, I think he built them all there, hence the name factory of the gentiles or crafts place of the gentiles it became renowned as a place up on the edge of this of this uh, sort of hill area uh, on the, on the sort of the back end of mount carmel where there was obviously smelting and ironwork going on and he had 900 chariots of iron these are war chariots these are the equivalent of modern tanks And he was using them to great advantage. He was oppressing and suppressing the the people in Israel and taking what it was that he wanted. Now, in chapter 5, verses 6 and 7, which is in the song, there's a little detail that's missed in the narrative, and it's going to be on the screen. It says this, in the days of Shamgar, son of Anat, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned. And travelers kept to the byways. The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I, Deborah, arose. Now, what does it mean? It means that the tyranny of Sisera was so great, people abandoned farms. They moved to what? Gated communities where they would have a chance to live, not be slaughtered by Sisera and all those 900 iron chariots running around, pillaging and stealing and suppressing Israel. That's what it means is they're terrified. A little bit like what's happened in the pandemic, don't you think? There's a terror in the pandemic. What I mean by that is that our lives have changed because, look at you, you're all wearing masks. Now, I congratulate you for doing that because it's common sense. But we're only doing it because there's some oppressive force requiring it. I'm not talking about the government. Here, I'm really talking about not wanting to get or spread the pandemic. It's changed your life. You probably wash your hands more, you, you, you cough into your elbow, all, all good things. But what I'm saying is all of those things have to be done thoughtfully because there's something out there that is oppressing and changing your life. Changes you probably wouldn't make if you didn't have to, both from a medical scientific standpoint and because of government edicts, who, for the main, are looking after our interests. So what I'm saying is life changed in that day. And what happened is, as it was changing, people came to Deborah, who was in the hill country of Ephraim, and she was in a hill country a little bit to the north, and they would make their way up. there. That's why they rose up to Deborah, and they sought her counsel. And what they said is, this is terrible. Do something. They appealed to her. And so what she does in the passage earlier we read is that she issues a summons, and she says to Barak... Don't you know what God said? You're to deliver, you are to to gather an army, and you are supposed to lead the forces of Israel. And he hasn't done it. He's been reluctant. Now, there's some reasons for his reluctance that don't appear on the surface. We just see him as faltering. Faltering. Uh, But this is a general. He's seasoned in battle. He's not afraid of the opportunity, but there is a challenge. The first thing is we realize that he is a person and 900 iron chariots, I mean, they had like swords on the rims of their wheels, you know, so it was just an awful machine. Destroyed so many lives, so many people. 900 of them, which meant they had horses, they had trained leaders, They had all kinds of equipment that went along with it. There were reasons, I'm suggesting to you, that that he was terrified. Uh, One of the others that it tells us, and we're going to come to it later, is that there weren't any spears and shields in Israel. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm facing a giant of a force that's super well-equipped, and I've got a few slingshots and I can run fast, I might start running before I have to face them, right? In other words, he's not a stupid man. He has reason for faltering. And Deborah says, your eyes are on the wrong thing. They're on you and not on God. You need to trust him, get going. So Barak got up and off he went. You see, the issue that's at play is chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, I need to remind you. Here they are on the, on the screen. And the people of Israel did again what was evil. In other words, it's a repeat. And, and it repeats sort of on a generational theme about 80 years later, 40 years later. After people have forgotten their deliverance, they fall back into an old pattern of compromise. If you went into a Jewish community, and then you went into a Canaanite community, you would notice huge differences. Their dress is different, their language is different, some of their customs are different, but what you would see is they are worshipping the same gods. They possess the same values. They have many of the same philosophically founded behaviors. They're worshipping Baals. You see, what I'm saying to you is people get what they deserve. Put Politically, people get the government they deserve. What that really means is the outworking in life is predicated on our choices. That's true personally, but it's also true socially and culturally. In this moment in in history, Israel was accommodating the religion, values, and practices of the Canaanites. They'd abandoned their faith and their obedience to God. You see, what is going on here is that God is being remarkably patient with the nation. Patient, how is he patient? Well, in the words of our pastor who's given us this thesis or theme over the entire book, God allows things he hates so that he can foster things he loves. You see, God does not want to be the one who oppresses his own nation and says, if you don't love me, this is what is going to happen. You see, just admit, God does say that, doesn't he? He does, but what he's saying to us in that process is I will not reduce you to robots without choice. I want you to love me from your heart. And when we don't, he says, okay, well, let's see how that's going to work out for you. And what has happened as Israel has accommodated the Canaanites and been like them, they've imagined that these will be their trusted friends. No, they are going to be their powerful enemies and treat them in the same way that they treat everyone around them. This is a motley crew, a motley culture who is consuming and taking advantage of those that are around them. But what we see in this passage, and we need to remind ourselves, is that God uses ordinary followers gifted by his spirit to accomplish his purposes through their obedience. And that will be on the slide because we're going to do a case study. We're going to do a case study of Deborah and know about her and her acts, and then that's going to lead us into Barak and what he does. So I've already told you some of the story because you see in verse 6 of chapter 4 that she sends for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kedesh and Naphtali, which is in the north, and says to him, The Lord God of Israel commands you. In other words, I'm reminding you what you already know. Go and get the 10,000 soldiers and get busy. God's on the move. Now, I've told you why he hesitates. Because in chapter 5, we'll read about what's going on as the backstory. It says in verse 8, When they chose new gods, war came to the city gates. Not a shield or a spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. Now, he raises 10,000. What happens? The answer is, as he goes by and he gives the call, quite a few of the tribes went, mm, no, I don't think we'll join you. That's amazing. She issues a call of all of Israel to come to the battle and significant numbers say, and they're listed there, no, so half the tribe of Manasseh joins, Naphtali joins, Zebulun joins. Half of Manasseh says no. Why? Well, they're living on the other side of the Jordan and they're not having so much difficulty, they don't really see the advantage and they stay home to live another day. In this passage of scripture, Deborah says, you you need to get busy, Barak. And and Barak pauses, and he hesitates, and he says to her, well, here's my question, because he's uncertain. He's uncertain, and his confidence ultimately is placed in the wrong place. He he actually says to Deborah, "Well, well, I'll tell you what, if you go with me, I'll go. Now, what's going on here? Is this a man that is terrified hiding behind a woman's skirts? No, I think actually he's treating her like a good luck charm in a sense. He's saying, you're asking me to put my life on the line, so here's the deal. If you go with me and show you're all in, I'll go. But if you don't go with me, why would I go? In other words, are you willing to put your money where your mouth is? Are you going to put up or shut up? I was using coarse vernacular terms, but that's really the ultimatum. Look, I don't want to do this on my own, on a whim. In other words, he hasn't really believed that she's a prophetess, that she is the voice of God. Not so sure. Not when it comes to his life. And she says, remarkably, I'm all in, let's get going, pack and move. And off they go. They begin to make the journey. Deborah responds and she tells him that his lack of obedience is actually going to mean that the glory God had planned for him is going to dissolve. Do you begin to see how obedience is linked here? If you're willing to do what God says, God will care for you and honor you. And if you falter... The glory will go somewhere else. Now, if we put it in another story in, in the mouth of Esther, it's when, when uh, she is the queen. She's won the beauty contest. She's in the harem of the, of the emperor. And, and her uh, uncle, cousin, Mordecai, comes to her and says, now, look, this is what you need to do. Israel's at risk. And you don't act and use your pos- position. You need to know that the honor will go somewhere else. As for you and your house, you'll perish. It's up to you. Will you do it? That's what she's saying to, to Barak. Because you're not willing to go, the honor that could be yours won't be yours. Is going to go to a woman. Now I think many commentators who would look at this say that was probably Deborah thinking it was her. I don't think she says that. I don't think that's fair to attribute that to her. She simply calls him on the carpet for it. And he does gain the 10,000 men, uh, but in, 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 chapter, uh, in, in these chapters, it, it says in verse uh, 14 of chapter 5 again in the song um, that we should be talking about this because some came from Ephraim. Uh, Benjamin joined, Makir joined, Zebulun joined, Prince of Issachar joined. All of these individuals were willing to join. There were 10,000 people that were willing to follow. And as the story continues, uh, she goes with him, and there uh, on Mount Tabor, there are 10,000 that are following. There's a little interlude where we learn a little bit more about, uh, about Barak. But then in verse 14 of chapter 4, we read this. Deborah said to Barak, Go! This is the day! In other words, he's there and he's standing with the army and he's watching Sisera on the far side of the valley and doing nothing. Standing still, standing aisle. Waiting. And she, with power and the command and authority of God, says, What on earth are you waiting for? You know what you should be doing. This is the day. No weapons, and he's called to act. 10,000 people to walk into what? Slaughter, he's told to act. But there's an important point for us to understand and act on, and it's simply this, friends. We may not have the resources we need. We may not believe that we have the manpower we need. Why? Why? Because the resources that we need are in the harvest that comes through obedience, not in our pockets before we choose to obey. It's a principle throughout the scripture. The church is frequently called to serve in a community that is both marginalizing them and ignoring their message. And often the church feels about itself, we are too few among two, so many. We, we are so little in our own eyes, let alone to us. And we sort of feel right now as a Christian community that we're marginalized, and, and, and if you speak up and identify yourself that that is your basis of life, maybe what you're going to face is both ridicule, uh, a silence, a putting out to the side. You know, as a friend of mine who was involved in a enormous building program in a neighboring city and really serving by having all kinds of levels of government be involved in serving to reach the marginalized and the those who had mental illness of various kinds and the indigent those who had no places in the community and he was speaking at a a group really appealing for further funding and the man beside him when he sat down said good speech but i thought you were someone who was smart It's a devastating criticism, isn't it? To be told after you've appealed for money that you're stupid? That you represent a rather weak and unappealing front? Sometimes it's those remarks that make us pull in and be silent when the Spirit of God is nudging us to take action, to speak, and to go forth. Sometimes our experience and looking at what we don't have instead of the God who equips us and will supply our needs silences us. So she tells him for a second time, uh, please engage. You know, move forward, don't wait. Act. And actually the outcome is remarkable, but there's an added detail in Judges chapter five that i want to point out to you it's in verse four. four oh lord when you went out from seir when you marched from the land of edom the earth shook the heavens poured the clouds poured down water and the mountains quaked before the lord the one of sinai now, what's he saying there's two things going on here number one is that god is doing something unseen to influence the outcome right now and what is that it's called rain. What happens to huge, heavy mud? They sink. They can't move. They're stuck. So what I'm saying to you is as Deborah says, now you should go. Water is coming in from an unexpected place, the desert, Edom, the hill country, uh, the parched land. And, And it comes and it fills the rivers of Kishan and it actually mires all of those great chariots the other thing that happens is that God is saying out of Eden meaning out of a place you don't expect me to come out from a place where you don't think I am what is he saying God is the God of everything and he's bringing actually out of the provenance of the Baal who was the fertility God who brought the blessing the fertility of the earth and the water that rained but here it is, God using rain as a poke in the eye of the Baals to tell Israel he has it all under control if they would but follow him and obey him. Do you begin to see? Now, the story in chapter four is weighted on the behavior of people. That's the focus. But chapter by Deborah, and it's a gruesome story. You know the details. So so here's Sisera. He sees his army is being defeated, and he runs, leaves his chariot. It's mired in the mud, and he runs, and what does he see? He sees a tent of a friend of his whose name is Heber, and Heber is a Kenite. He's not an Israeli. He's a Kenite. The Kenites, if you don't know, are related both to Moses because his wife, Jethro, the the father, and Moses' wife came from the Uh, craftsmen, and they were metal workers. So it's no surprise that he would have a job working for Sisera in a foundry or a metal shop to make these iron chariots. Uh, he's not mentioned. We don't know where he is. We don't know if he was with the army, but he turns in because Sisera has a relationship with the family and he sees jail there and he runs over to her tent and says, give me sanctuary. I'm in trouble. Not only does she give him sanctuary, but it says she, she gave him a, like a Bedouin, a nomadic tribes um, yogurt. It's this milk that comes out of a skin bag. Well, it's rich. It would be full of good things that would sustain him but he was also hungry and tired from battle and exhausted and he lays down in the tent and she covers him with this heavy rug-like blanket. He rolls over and he falls fast asleep and then it says she came in very quietly and being a smart, shrewd, Bedouin woman, traveling nomadic woman, takes a tent peg and a mallet and puts it through his temple and drives it to the earth and kills him. Hence the fulfillment of Deborah's prophecy. It went to jail what was the point jail likely saw the outcome of the battle and she knew if she gave sanctuary to jail that she or jail gave sanctuary to Sisera she would forever have to leave Israel she would lose the opportunity of working alongside this nation that was that was giving them sanctuary because they were all friendly and this, these Canaanite groups played between all these different tribes and she made a decisive choice to care for herself and her family. Now, for her lie or for her cunning, but certainly uses to great advantage and kills Sisera. Would she have taken that action if Deborah had not prophesied, if Deborah had not called on Barak, if Barak had not gone? And the answer is, of course not. There was no need, there was no opportunity, there was no motivation. What am I saying? The obedience of God's people leads to spiritual, cultural, social change. Obedience. So let me just bring it up to this final slide, my last slide here, and ask you these questions as we're preparing to leave. How does the story change you when you read it from God who is acting behind the scenes, preparing to come to the aid of his people, and his call to you now to obey him when you're convinced you're not enough? When you think, God, you could find a better person, God, you could find someone who is more socially engaged, someone who is more... Well, someone who's better. That's what it comes down to. Because in your own eyes, you're not enough. How will this affect your decision to follow his calling if you believe that God will make you enough? And what he asks from you is not superiority. He simply asks of you obedience. Are you willing? Secondly, how do you feel about God calling you to serve when you're convinced that you are not enough and do not have enough? It's faith, isn't it? Your willingness to do what the Lord of creation has asked you to do. So here in this passage of Scripture with Deborah, against whom not a single thing is said, there's no flaw in her character or in her obedience, and Barak, who falters twice, and Jael, who acts in the moment because of influence. Closing question. Are we willing to do what God says? Let's pray. Father God, the challenge in this passage of Scripture is enormous because it hits us where we live. It touches every aspect of our life, whether or not we're being willing to do what it is your word says we should do, whether we trust you and are willing to act on what you've asked, willing to enter the harvest, willing to be part of your people, willing to do what you say. And so, Father, I would pray that your spirit would take your word and work it into our life, that we might see with hopefulness, encouragement, anticipation that the God who leads us will supply for us and care for us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.